All right. Hello again, everybody. Um, sitting on my living room floor, about to watch Lockstock and two smoking barrels. Not one. There's two smoking barrels. This film was, I think, the second Guy Ritchie movie I ever saw. I think the first one I saw was Snatch. Um, but ever since seeing Snatch and Lockstock, I was like, this Guy Ritchie guy is pretty good. Um, yeah, he's definitely one of the filmmakers that at an early age I like gravitated towards and was like, these are the sort of films or, you know, sort of genres and stuff that I like want to be a part of one day and, and make in the filmmaking world. But that's enough about that. If you haven't seen Lockstock, really can't recommend it enough. It's just it's like, I know a lot of American people and they're always like, what's a good, like, uh, What's a good definition of like um, English cinema? I'm like Snatch, Lockstock, that sort of stuff. You got to watch that sort of stuff. Or Sexy Beast. That's a great film. That's not a Guy Ritchie film. Anyway, so I digress. Again, of course, as with all these podcasts, there will be spoilers galore. So if you're sensitive about spoilers, um, which I myself. Um, I don't like spoilers, then I would advise you to go watch the film, then come back to the podcast. If you don't care, you just want to listen to the podcast, great. Glad you're along for the ride. Without further ado, let's get this show on the road and step into the East End of London. I'm a big fan of a strong opening. Ooh, I think I just breached the microphone terribly then. Sorry about that, if that hurt your ears. Um, yeah, you've got to have a strong opening. Uh, in any film you've got to have a strong opening and and this one nails it absolutely nails it so we start off with uh jason statham's character bacon and uh nick morin's character eddie hustling selling some moody gold on the side of the street and just to sort of quickly run through it, it's quite simple staging and setup with a camera in the sense that you've got them behind the stool selling their stuff and then a crowd of people around them so the camera sort of slowly moves in and amongst the people around them, you know, the the people trying to buy this this stolen uh, gold and that this stolen jewelry. So the the camera moves as if we are one of the um, the people coming in to like buy something, um, and then it keeps cutting between like the title credits on a black screen and then cutting back to the um, to the sort of market selling. Um, I don't know if that's just like a passage of time or. It, to me it always makes it seem like it's like the stuff that we're seeing with Jason Statham um, we're not really supposed to be seeing you know like it's it's stealthy and it is because they are illegally selling stolen goods so that that's what I get from it um, and then the music stops to amp up a little bit in the background um, and then you know when the police come it sort of reaches its its climax and there's a small chase sequence and then I really like what they do with the narration here, right? So the narrator starts talking over. Um, is it Alan Ford? So the bloke, he plays uh, Bricktop in Snatch. I'm pretty sure it's Alan Ford. I'll have to look that up in a minute. Um, yeah, he basically starts introducing the characters, you know, a little bit more about them. But they sort of appear on the screen in slow-mo. So um, it's just a nice way to sort of let the audience know exactly which one he's talking about but done in a stylistic way instead of like you know just focus on them or freeze framing on them or something using the slow-mo as they career down this corner um to go down some stairs is is a nice way of doing it so strong opening from mr ritchie 
again, great uh, camera work from Guy Ritchie, and I don't know who the cinematographer was, and that's actually, uh, but um, it's similar to that opening scene where I said like the camera moves into the crowd as if we're one of them, right? So we get uh, after the opening credits have gone, we get an establishing shot of um, Tom's shop, played by Jason Fleming, amazing actor. Um, so it's an outside establishing shot of him, and then as Nick Moran walks into frame, we then follow him with the camera into the shop, so there's no cut. And when we get in there, we've got Nick the Greek talking to Tom. Classic Guy Ritchie dialogue straight away, like, you know, banter, slang, as in like, you know, not quite Cockney Roman slang, although he does use that a lot, but it's, it's like street lingo, you know, they're not, they're not accountants, they're not talking, you know, proper or anything. Um... Oh, and it was Alan Ford, by the way. I was right about that. Um, as the narrator. Yeah, and then, so the camera, f- then, d- again, we don't cut. They they move from where they are at the front of the shop to the back office. And it's all done on, like, a steady cam, like, handheld thing. I think I explained steady cams and stuff before in a different podcast. So, um, I won't do it again. Um, if you haven't listened to it, you're just going to have to listen to all of them until you find which one it is with the description of steady cam use because I can't remember which one it is. And this is a really good way to try and get you to listen to all my podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Joking, you don't have to. Um, yes, yeah, so we get a nice bit of steady cam. And then again, like I said, with the classic Guy Ritchie dialogue, there, um, Nick the Greek's trying to basically squeeze out a better deal from Tom on this thing he's buying than what Tom is willing to give him. Um, and then so as they're opening the box to see what what it is you know that he's selling him um, the first time the camera cuts from the steady cam it cuts from looking up inside the box as Nick the Greek has like folded back the bit of cardboard so we just see his face from like below which is a really obscure uh, camera angle and then but that cut basically acts as a sort of punchline for him to say like oh I thought it included the amp because he's trying to squeeze out getting this amp with him as well as I think it's like some sort of sound system um, just a great example of the intricacies within Guy Ritchie's films, you know, like the dialogue is a character in and of itself, the same as like the the camera is and the cuts are like everything in his films is very deliberate. You know, every shot will have a purpose, every cut will have a purpose. And I know that that goes for like a lot of films, but I feel like it's written, it's almost like he writes a script and plans his um, shots with like the editing part of it in mind whereas a a lot of the time with filmmaking or tv or anything you know you'll you'll plan obviously the script and the shots and everything like that and then when you get into the editing room you sort of just pick the best of the bunch and see works which works the best but i feel like with someone like guy Ritchie, quite a lot of other directors do do it as well uh like i think scorsese does for example but someone like Guy Ritchie will be very deliberate. Like, no, this exact shot will then be edited into this exact shot and, and so forth. At least that's the impression I get because everything is so deliberate. Either that or he's the king of happy accidents. And I don't mean that kind of happy ap- accident. Keep that nonsense to yourself. Gonna feel like I'm going to do what I do on every podcast and just spend the first half an hour of the pod talking about the first 10 minutes of the film. But again, he does that great... Um, it's not quite slow mo. It's more like sort of extending the frame rates of uh, of the shots, where the narration comes in again. So it gives the narrator time to, you know, talk about the things that are happening on screen, and gives the audience time to sort of keep up with it. Um, and you know, just as we're getting used to the four main characters, you know, Jason Statham, Nick Moore, and Jason Fleming, and Dexter Fletcher. Um, Dexter Fletcher, by the way, what a great career he's having at the moment. Um, 
doing a lot more directing lately. I believe his latest triumph is Rocket Man. Well, one of his latest triumphs is Rocket Man, anyway. Um, but what a boy. Anyway, so then when we get to see uh, Jason Fleming, because um, he's a chef, so straight away, how do we establish that this man's a chef? We have him in a kitchen. But more than that, Guy Ritchie will go the extra mile and he'll have the camera, again, similar to being in the box with Nick the Greek opening the box. He opens a like a boiling uh, pot of water. Well, it's not boiling at this point, it's just a pot of water. With a camera looking up underneath the water to the lid. Lid comes off. We see Jason Fleming with his chef's like garbs on. I don't know what you call that jacket. Chef's jacket, you know what I mean. And he like pops some carrots in there and then cut out to see him, you know, going about his business in the kitchen, doing the rest of the stuff. Straight away, we know that this bloke's a chef. Yeah, you, you don't need to do much more than that to let the audience know who your characters are. But throwing in a little stylistic shot, like looking up the bottom of the uh, pan with the water in it, it's just that much more enjoyable. Thinking outside the box, mate. Then we introduce the villains. So cut to a big neon sign saying sex shop or something. And then this like uh, sort of, I don't know, it's not quite sleazy sounding. That's probably a harsh way to describe it. But, you know, this like trumpet sort of thing starts playing in the background. It's a bit like smooth jazz that you click your fingers to, you know. Um, but when you see a big neon sign that says sex shop and you hear that soundtrack, you do think like sleazy sex parlor or whatever, which is you know exactly what we're meant to be thinking. And then cut to inside and you've got P.H. Moriarty as Atchit Addy. Um, the main villain of the film sat at his desk sipping on a big tumbler or whiskey. Interesting lighting choices behind him, you know, sort of the uh, almost like the hue of the the neon sort of blue and and pinky purple sign outside him. Um, he's really short and sweet and abrupt on the phone, which says a lot about his character because he's on the phone to um, Nick Moran's character. Uh, so. He's really short and sweet with him on the phone, which says a lot about his character in the sense that, um, you know, you're always on his time. He's not on your time. Um, he'll have the final say. He's the boss, you know, takes no shit or no nonsense from anyone. Uh, and then we spin around and see... Um, oh, what's his name? Barry the Baptist, that's it. Um, yeah, and then we get to see a little bit of behind the scenes as to why he's called Barry the Baptist. So straight away, both these sort of two villains, you know, the main villain and his henchman, Barry the Baptist, were shown straight away that they are like no-nonsense, hard, gritty, dirty, you know, sort of people you don't want to cross. Um, whereas the four sort of uh, main characters we've been introduced to so far, although they aren't doing things that are exactly legal, they all seem like, you know, pretty nice guys. So we get a huge sort of, straight away it's obvious to the audience whose side the, the narration wants us to be on. Again, using music to illustrate um, the vibe of, of certain characters, right? So we're getting out, out uh, an exterior shot of, um, I think it's Jason Statham and Nick Moran's flat. But all four of the boys that we've just been introduced to, um, you know, they walk f like from behind camera into frame, go into the flat to, you know, quite a, a harmless sounding soundtrack. As soon as they go in, you hear like one of those big sort of guitar slides, you know, it's like, 
and then uh, the soundtrack gets a bit more gnarly, a bit more distortion in the music, and this other group of characters come from the opposite side behind camera and go into the opposite flat or the the adjacent flat. We don't see them straight away. Then after that, it does go to inside uh, Statham's flat, but straight away we're like oh who are these boys and they're obviously a little bit more unsavory than the four main people that we've seen because the soundtrack suggests that um but we'll get onto them in a bit and i described uh hatchet harry and uh barry the but uh barry the baptist as um you know the main villains of it they are technically the main villains of it but this other group of of gents we've just seen walk into the gnarlier soundtrack they're like a subcategory of villain and there's a few more subcategories of villains in this film that i've sort of forgotten about it's been a couple of years since i've seen this film but good god is it good ah i love these four characters so then we go to the um the four lads that that grow all the weed and we get um police and thieves is that by the clash originally but you know that song police and thieves so it's got that like reggae sort of offbeat guitar to it um so straight away when you see that and someone walking through fields of not fields but like walking through their their indoor growing spot of cannabis you're like okay i know exactly who these people are and they have a few bits of dialogue between them where it's quite clear who like what the sort of hierarchy is of that group of friends you know one of them's giving two of them a hard time for like not using the security gate and things like that so straight away through the the dialogue and the music and even their costumes, you know, they're they're the first pair of jumpers you've seen throughout this film. Everyone else is wearing, you know, polos and and jackets and stuff. But these guys are all wearing like knitted woolly jumpers and stuff, looking like you know, sort of proppy, proppy, proper harmless hippies. But that became proppy. Um, yeah. So again, through the maison scene um, and the music and everything, these characters are well established early on. In that in that short little scene that they have, and we cut to a couple of the best characters on there: Big and Little Chris, and my God, Vinnie Jones, what a lad! So again, through a bit of handy narration from uh, Alan Ford, uh, we get a quick description of Vinnie James's character, Big Chris, being the debt collector for. Um, did he say actually, Ari? I think he did. Yeah. Um. And the fact that his son, Little Chris, is, you know, is, is heir and the only other thing that he cares about, really. So then we, we go into uh, this building where he's obviously gone to collect a debt of someone. And his kid is sort of ahead of him, scoping it out, opening a few doors and everything. And then, so we already know that Vinnie Jones is a debt collector, right? And then the camera cuts to him moving down the corridor very slowly after after his son you know letting his son scope it out and find the target first sort of thing and he's moving so slowly down the, the corridor he's not he's not in a rush he's completely going by his own time and it weirdly it sort of reminded me of like watching a great white shark swim like when it's such an alpha predator that they don't need to be in a rush they can completely sort of you know bang to the beat of their own drum or whatever um, and then top it to top it off then you've then got um james brown's the boss playing in the background you know so you see like these shots of vinnie jones looking all tough walking down this corridor it like as slow as he likes with the uh, james brown in the background going see a bad mother 
it's just straight away you're like, okay, let's not mess with Vinnie Jones then, shall we? Because he, he looks hard. Side note as well, this has got to be the only film in history where someone has used a tanning bed to interrogate someone. <laughs> and it sounds really dark to laugh at it, but he if you've seen it, you'll know what I mean. Vinnie Jones literally slams the, the roof of this tanning bed on the poor bloke underneath it who's uh, getting a tan instead of repaying his debts. Um, and there's some really good dialogue, especially between him, uh, uh, Vinnie Jones, and his kid about, you know, minding his P's and Q's and stuff. Um, it's just great. Guy Ritchie just nails dialogue. And one of the best dialogue exchanges between characters ever committed to film is between uh, Barry the Baptist and the two Scouse lads that he's hiring to rob the uh, the estate. Oh, it's just such good dialogue, you know. That is the um, Mackie Northern monkeys. I hate these fucking Southern fairies. That exchange, I won't recite it all for you, but such a good scene. Really simply shot as well. You know, they don't need to do a lot or anything. It's mainly just sort of mids and closes on the two on the both sides of the table as they're talking. But the dialogue is just so good. And then one of the best like bait and switch setups. They, the four, uh, three of the lads can't get into the card game. Only Ed can go in. So they walk to the pub and a guy runs out of the front door of the pub on fire. No explanation. They pause and watch him go for a bit. No one tries to help him. And then they go back into the pub and then it cuts away to someone else. And if you've seen the film, it gets explained later why that guy ends up on fire. But you're just like, what? It's very... um non-linear you know the same as way like uh same as way yeah that's a sentence why not the same way as uh you know pulp fiction like when you see um jules and vincent vega they're wearing suits and then they do a job and then the next time you see them they're wearing like board shorts and oversized t-shirts and you're like hang on what what happened and then you find out later on in the film what happened in between them wearing the suits and then wearing the board shorts is that kind of non-linear thing you're just presented with a really obscure thing out of context and you're like what the hell and then later on you get to find out the why um so doing that is a really good way to sort of keep the audience interested in the narrative and paying attention because you're giving them these random bits of you know information and then they have to pay attention to see the the answers you know or the solutions or whatever it might be so it's a, it's a good way to sort of narratively keep your audience on their toes um, and keep them interested. I'm skipping over quite a bit now because um, I'm already like nearly 20 minutes in and the film is like just about 25 minutes in or not even that right now. Um, so cut to finally getting the poker game going um, between actually Ari, Eddie and, and all the rest of them. And it's soon as a lot of the you know there's the establishing shots and everything to sort of build up to the poker game but from the point where they actually are playing uh, a lot of the shot all of the shots i think are like close-ups right on their faces or at the very least it's a sort of head and shoulders close-up and i think that's to sort of show the um the intimacy of a poker game and i don't mean into intimacy romantically i just mean that it's very if you've ever played poker Anything else in the world can be going on around you, but if you're concentrating on the game of poker, reading your opponent, you know, bluffing, concentrating, seeing what cards have come up and what's gone down, what the chances are of you having, 
you know, a flush appear or the guy opposite you having it. If you're concentrating on it, nothing else really sort of matters at that point. So that makes me sound like I'm a really hardcore gambler. I'm not. I'm also not that great at poker. But, you know, put yourself in their shoes if you've not played poker before. So And also as well, where there is so much about poker uh, in the sense of like trying to read people, trying to read if they're bluffing you or lying, it, all these shots being right close up intimate shots sort of help give that uh, vibe across to the audience. Um, so it's a good way to, to film a scene like that. Uh, but then also as well, the idea of like expressions and, um, you know, sort of like revealing yourself and your cards and everything to the players around you with your reactions and your expressions is one of the key plot points uh, in this poker scene so um yeah it just makes all the sense in the world for all the shots to be real intimate up in their face sort of shots just quickly comment on the montage that happens while they're playing poker again full-on guy Ritchie's stylistic uh expression you know uh, really sort of he's got he's does so much of it these days, especially in like the Sherlock films and stuff. But um, yeah, you can see sort of like already he knew what sort of director he wanted to be. So you have this like little montage of them playing poker, great music in the background. And again, to go back to one of my earlier points in the sense that a lot of the editing, be it on the cuts or the music or anything like that is very deliberate. Um, there's a lyric of the song that says still going out. And then as it says out the woman that's running the poker game for everybody, you know, being the dealer and stuff. Uh, she says out and points out because uh, one of the um, one of the poker players is like kicking off that he's just lost all his money and everything, and then they chuck him out. So like the soundtrack syncing up with the visuals on screen is uh, it's just a great stylistic choice. Um, it's sort of a bit meta in a way. I don't know if it takes the audience out of the realism of it, but I like it. I, I don't think there's any sort of uh, anything wrong with it. It's just a great... It really shows that the director knows exactly what they had in mind, like what their vision was, and then, you know, the execution is bang on. This is one of my favourite bits in the whole film, is um, when Hatchet, Harry and Eddie are raising the stakes again and again on the bet to, you know, uh, bluff each other out or whatever. Um gets to the point where just to sum it up for you um eddie's gonna end up owing harry a lot of money if he uh loses this hand so then when the cards are coming down you know they, they get to the point where they flip them over so you see what each other's hands are and there's a shot it's kind of a wide or a mid where you've got the table in front of harry and then harry sat behind it and then one by one he like puts his card down on top of the table and each time he does it there's like a big dramatic sound effect like a thum, and then we see Eddie's reaction second card thum, where you're like uh oh he actually might have a really good hand so then the second time we see Eddie the camera doesn't uh, sorry the first time we see him after the first card he plays down the camera sort of slowly zooms in on Eddie not much of a reaction second time when we're like oh shit actually Harry might actually have a really good hand when we then zoom back in on Eddie, it's done quicker to sort of show the panic building. And then when the third one comes down and we know he's got a better hand than Eddie at this point, uh, the shot on Eddie is all like um, wavy, like he's about to throw up. He's all sort of like um, like vertigo kind of thing, you know, he's all over the place. And then um, 
Iggy and the Stooges, I want to be your dog, starts playing as like Eddie stumbles out of the of the uh, the poker game, knowing that he's basically just put him and his mates 500k in debt to a proper psychopath of a gangster in London. It's a great, great moment. Where he sort of, it's, I can't remember what they call it actually, but it's where the camera is basically attached to the actor um, so that as they walk and move, the, the camera moves with them, but then all the background behind them moves uh, a bit more all over the place. It just creates a w really weird sort of uncomfortable, um, I can't get the words out now, uh, just like a weird, uncomfortable kind of um, pacing for for the camera to show, um, which is a really good way of showing that the character's not, like they haven't got their balance, they're a bit all over the place, because he is sort of in a mixture of shock and panic. And we get to see the other group of psychopaths again, which is uh, the neighbours of Jason Statham, the guys that I mentioned before. Um, so again, we have their sort of like theme tune, you know, that gnarly sort of distorted uh, guitar riff. Again, plays uh, a bit throughout their scene. Um, we'll basically see them uh, effectively torturing these two blokes by uh, swinging golf balls at them um, and using one of their mouths as like the tee to put the golf ball on and then swing the golf ball at uh, one of the other guys. And they get their money and the drugs off of them. And then uh, he throws a giant like machete thing at one of them. And then you that what helps us know if that wasn't clear and obvious enough that this main guy that they call dog is a complete psychopath is all of his crew that are there watching him they even sort of like wince and are like jesus he's taking this a little bit far isn't he um you know as he throws this uh this blade at him um so then yeah it's sort of it's unquestionable then at this point to the audience that this guy is a nutter and someone that you don't want to cross so if you don't have those sort of like um reaction shots of his of his crew sort of reacting to that happening um maybe that doesn't get put as clearly across to the audience that's the point i was making you know it's all about the including shots with purpose you know or you know a lot maybe some people especially first-time directors like this was uh, guy Ritchie's first film that he directed he'd done music videos and shorts before this is his first feature you know maybe someone a bit um wet behind the ears might not have had the foresight to include shots like that but Guy Ritchie did because he's a boss then reintroducing Rory Breaker back into the narrative so we're going to skip over some stuff um, a lot of it is sort of you know with the classic Guy Ritchie bits that we've already been talking about great dialogue uh, cutting and that like intercutting between different scenes and narratives and everything to move all along anyway introducing Rory Breaker um, so we get a little interaction between him and Nick the Greek where, again, through things like uh, how they set up the scene, it's obvious that he's, you know, within his realm, he's a man in charge sort of thing. You know, he sat behind a desk. Um, he's got two henchmen sat behind Nick, or stood behind Nick the Greek, sort of keeping him in check. Nick looks all nervous and, and a bit jittery to sort of be in his presence. So everything is geared up just sort of set up wise to show that he's the man in charge. Um, and then we cut to uh, Jason Fleming asking the bartender about Rory Breaker and then we finally get the reveal of why that bloke was on fire later on like 20 minutes later um, from when that when you first saw the guy on fire so they're really jumping around with the non-linear narrative um, if you don't know what linear or non-linear is linear is when it's literally from point A to point B in perfect order and then non-linear is when you'll see 
you know, future bits early on, past bits later, and you know, the messing around with the uh, the the timestamps of the narrative, if that makes sense. If that wasn't a good enough description for you, Google it. And so this um, explanation of why the guy was on fire is one of the coolest, uh, like, I want to say gimmick, but not in a bad way. It's got one of the, we'll call it a stylistic choice. It's got one of the coolest stylistic choices that Guy Ritchie does in the whole movie. So this bloke tells uh, Jason Fleming a story of why the guy got set on fire, and he does it all in Cockney rhyming slang, which most British people, we can understand most of it. You know, a lot of us know that apples and pears, stairs, etc., but there's where he literally says the entire conversation in Cockney Ryman slang. What Guy Ritchie does is he puts subtitles at the bottom of the screen to translate it into the Queen's English. But even to the point where the stuff that isn't Cockney Ryman slang is getting translated as well. And it just makes it so much funnier. Because it will be like um, one of the lines is like, that's fucking it. And the translation at the bottom is, I've had enough. <laughs> it's so good. It just... That's the thing about Guy Ritchie, although he obviously takes his filmmaking very seriously in the sense that he, it's his art form, he's really good at it. He also doesn't take himself seriously in the sense that he's willing to have a laugh when he's doing stuff, i.e., you know, uh, translating, I, that's fucking it, to I've had enough. Like, it's just good humour. Again, just to comment on the, the use of music or sound effects in this film, I think my favourite directors do tend to be of that mindset, you know, be it Guy Ritchie, uh, Scorsese, Tarantino. Music is a very big driving force behind their movies, uh, be it to act as sort of like a character theme tune, or obviously a lot of movies will use music to set the tone or the vibe of the particular scene. Um, but specifically Guy Ritchie in this film will use music or sound effects um, to sort of, in a way, act as like a character. So whenever these muskets appear, I don't know if they are muskets, those old antique rifles, whenever they appear on screen, um, there's always a like a you know, uh, that, that sort of plays in the background. And it, it happens whenever they appear on screen. And it's just sort of almost like a running gag. It's quite funny, but, you know, I guess in a way as well, it might be because not a lot of audience members are going to be, you know, antique musket experts. So having that ding appear every time they're on screen is like, okay, these are the same guns as before. I don't know, that's probably not it. It's probably just because it's a fun thing to do. Um, but yeah, Gorich is amazing at that. Just having impactful music. It's exactly what I was talking about before, so I won't, you know, go over the point too much, but impactful music where it's very deliberate and it's not just a soundtrack. It's so much more than that. And Soap has his little uh, monologue about... Uh, guns for show, knives for a pro. So what the camera does is it's on a wide between the three gents that are there uh, and the other one's off to the side on a chaise long sofa or something like that. But anyway, as Soap starts his little monologue, the camera zooms in, t cutting out uh, Jason Statham and Jason Fleming from shot, just goes into Dexter Fletcher. He does his monologue. There's one cut away to Eddie on the side reacting to his monologue but it's most of it stays nice and tight on Soap's face and he's talking very subtly but he's talking about some pretty dark stuff so that little bringing it right in again is that intimacy between audience and what we're seeing on screen and then to bring you know to sort of get out of that um, intense sort of dramatic thing he's talking about the camera zooms back out to bring Jason Fleming and Jason Statham back into the into the frame 
Um, and they have some, you know, sort of funny throwaway uh, one-liners to sort of bring the tension back down again. But just, again, great use of, of camera work to hone in on a sort of more intense thing and then zoom back out and get some levity back. The whole uh, heist scene from start to finish between Dog and all his boys and the um, the four uh, weed growers is so good. I won't go through it blow for blow because it's quite a long sequence, um, but so much of it, it relies on uh, the dialogue, you know, the Guy Ritchie written dialogue and obviously, you know, the actor's uh, execution of said dialogue. Um, but there are a couple of really good like stylized uh, shots in it. Like, um, oh, and there's a, a return of a running gag as well, sorry, before I forget, of earlier we've had, um, I think it's Gloria, sat on the sofa and she's like wearing clothes that are patterned in the same sort of pattern as the furniture, so she just blends in. And where she's always like wasted on on drugs and stuff, um, she just sort of like mongs out on the sofa and she doesn't really move or interact with anybody, so she's easily blends into the background, basically. And there's a scene where that is made a joke of earlier on and then during this heist movement movement or moment i don't know what that was movement it's what cows do they form movements um so during this heist moment um again she's blended into the sofa and then she stands up and picks up the bring gun which is again a running gag during this uh, uh heist sequence and then here's an early again an early um uh sample of like guy Ritchie's crazy style um like i say that he you know really sort of hones in on in things like the um sherlock holmes movies but as she's firing this uh brain gun you know spraying bullets around the whole room there's slow-mo there's uh like sort of minor explosions of like you know the bullets hitting lamps and the lamps sort of you know blowing up kind of thing um and then we see like cuts of the uh the bullet shells hitting the floor and there's like a gong sound every time one of them hits the floor which you know isn't the exact noise it would make but it makes that scene a bit heavier and more intense when we can hear that like gong of uh you know the shells hitting the floor and stuff the bullet casings sorry or the shells whatever uh yeah it's just a great great bit of uh you know sort of a stylized action sequence without you know it's not like a mission impossible high speed chase fight scene or whatever it is ultimately an action scene because you've got a robbery and people with guns and stuff. But it's very subtle. Um, and like I say, a lot of it does... Um, a lot of it is drawn from the brilliance of the dialogue. Oh, yeah, and there's an early Rob Riding cameo as well who plays the role of the traffic warden who essentially becomes like a punchline in and of himself from just being in the wrong place, wrong time. Every character he meets throughout the rest of the film... Um, you know, basically abuses him or knocks him out, punches him or something. <laughs> he sort of becomes a running gag. But good old Rob Brydon, who doesn't love a bit of Rob Brydon. Just to comment quickly again on um, the simple sort of framing or um, the way that he will shoot certain characters doing uh, certain things is just top-tier filmmaking. You know, if it's one of the sort of like gang leaders talking to their crew, quite often the shot will be sort of looking up at them from below. So that's a, quite a simple way of showing status. You know, they're a higher status because we're looking up at them. Normally be looking down on some of the, uh, you know, the workmen, as it were, like the workforce of these gangs. Um, or again, there's another montage where all the lads, uh, the main four lads, um, get drunk and celebrate after they, you know, got, well, after their robbery was successful, basically. Um, great montage work in there, like using cuts between not necessarily cuts it could be like one shot 
um, but it will flirt between being a slow-mo shot or that and then it will speed up a bit and then it will slow down on something else and then it'll speed up a bit but all of it is all everything in that montage is showing like either you know cigarettes and booze and you know them dancing or whatever like it's all just it's littered throughout with all these uh you know um shots of them having a really good time um and then it's set to a really good soundtrack again because like i said before guy richie was one of those people that takes his soundtracks very seriously um so again just to sort of reiterate it, it i could you know you could break down every scene in this film and you'll always find an interesting shot you know an interesting angle an interesting bit of cinematography interesting bit of sound and everything so you know just to sort of sum it up for a lot of the movie it's great throughout okay cool now all the all the moving pieces of this film start to culminate at around about the uh hour 15 hour 20 mark right so like i've tried to sort of briefly cover the introductions of uh all the characters but you know you got anything from the four main lads the stoners uh rory breaker and his boys um the dog and you know his band of psychopaths <laughs> jesus i might edit that out that was a big burp and i did that well away from the mic as well and it still picked up i do apologize um anyway where was i derailed my train of thought with my own burp so yeah um all these moving parts start coming together and there's basically a quick succession of scenes, one after another, because that's what succession means. <laughs> there's a quick succession of scenes with um, basically quick conversations between all those moving parts. You know, the people either needing to get recompense for ha having, like Dog and his boys getting recompense for being robbed by um, the four boys. Rory trying to get recompense for the four boys, oh, sorry, for Dog and that lot robbing his weed, which then the boys robbed from them and then tried to sell back to them, but Rory thinks it's just the four boys. Um, you've got the Scouse guys trying to get the guns off of Nick the Greek, and Nick the Greek sold them to the four boys. And because of Rory in that situation, he's going to find it hard to get back to them. Actually, Ari's putting pressure on the four boys to get their money, and he's putting pressure on the Scouse geezers to get the guns for him. So all these moving parts coming together. I've definitely missed a couple, right? But we get a real quick sort of that quick succession of scenes is sort of like a reminder of by the way here's all the plot points and now because we're coming into the sort of the third and final act of the movie uh you know here's a reminder of it all here's what the stakes are let's get the show on the road and then there's such a brilliant i can't remember what the the soundtrack is oh it's a zorba's dance by i'm sorry if i mispronounced this it's greek mikis theodorakis theodorakis probably something like that i don't know but it's that it's that typical like Greek sort of folk song in a way where it starts all slow on kind of like mandolin noise like da ding and then it gets quicker and quicker and quicker so as the tension of all these moving parts come together the soundtrack gets quicker and quicker and like ups the ante and everything as it all uh, culminates into a, a big dramatic finale so just brilliant uh, like a uh, way of sort of um, making sure the narrative is is staying on point and the audience are well up on it and they know enough to sort of be following the storyline without being spoon-fed or without thinking, hang on, what's going on? Who's this? Who's that? It's just real good, concise filmmaking. That makes a non-linear storyline easier to follow. Also as well, as this little sort of montage is going with the, the you know, the song sort of setting the tempo in the background, um, we hear like a conversation between Rory Breaker and his boys saying about like uh, painting the house red with their claret and that. Um, you've got them loading up 
uh, shells into shotguns. You've got the same thing happening with Dog and his crew, you know, loading guns, finding hiding places and stuff. And then whenever you see the four main lads in their car, they're just like swapping jokes, you know, swapping like sex stories, you know, sex capades um, and all that. So it sort of shows they are completely none the wiser. They think they're out of the woods. They think they've done a job well and like they're finally, you know, safe and all that. And they don't realize that all hell is about to break loose around them. Um, so that, again, sort of provides a little bit of tension because, you know, if you're narratively speaking the um protagonists of the film are those four lads whereas the antagonists are all the other sort of gangs and mobsters and stuff um so we're sort of meant to be on those four lads sides anyway so we're sort of like oh no they have no idea what's going on but then it also just provides a bit of levity as well again because they're just sort of swapping jokes and stuff um right whereas well this film would have been done on a little bit of a stricter budget than a lot of Guy Ritchie's later films. You know, it's his first feature. It's just the way it goes. Um, so when I say the term low budget, I don't mean that disrespectfully as well, because some of the best filmmakers you'll see, will, or at least some of the best examples of filmmaking you'll see, will be people um, finding ways around a constricted budget, right? So the big shootout scene between Rory Breaker and, and his boys and Dog and his boys you actually see any of it we have that that you know that greek soundtrack uh you know sort of building us up to like the the precipice of it and then it cuts out there's a bit of tension almost like a mexican sort of standoff thing apart from half you know dog and all his boys are hidden you know they're in hiding places with their guns waiting so it's not quite a mexican standoff because Roy and his boys aren't pointing guns at them but everyone's waiting for someone to make the first move there's tension in the air and it's palpable and then we cut to like being outside of that room. We hear all the gunfire. We see like the windows being shattered from spray of bullets and stuff. Um, dog's actually hiding in the back room, counting the money and stuff. And as it all kicks off, he opens the door slightly. And as soon as he does, we hear a, a blast and like blood splats in his face. And then he closes the door again. So that entire shootout, we don't actually see happening. Um, we just hear the sound effects and, you know, see some debris from it. Um, so that could be you know, basically Guy Ritchie's saving money in the sense that he's not putting a big budget into a massive shootout. But also, uh, from a sort of, if we ignore budget constraints, because that very may well have been the reason he did it, but it also it's quite an artistic choice because, sorry, a good artistic choice because it's that whole thing of like, your the audience imagination is normally going to be better than what they're showing anyway. You know, like, for, I've, I've used this example before in different podcasts, but like, the whole thing about Steven Spielberg not showing you the full shark in Jaws was originally done because they didn't have a big enough budget to make the shark look really realistic, but it actually ended up making the film a lot more tense because it's the fear of the unknown and like this sort of phantom shape that's just cruising through the water, eating people. So again, it's that sort of thing, like the fear of the unknown, like, oh my God, what the hell is kicking off in that room? Like, how bad is this... Uh, shootout going to be is anyone going to make it out alive kind of thing you know you just have that like oh hell what's happening so um yeah there's a way that as well it might have been done because of budget but then it also does work in favor of the artistic vision and when the uh the four main boys come back and see all the carnage that's uh that's occurred in their house while they've been away um the three of them stay outside and they're framed by the window that's like i said before it's been sort of shot through and everything and the, the blinds are all haggard there's a bit of blood splatter on them pretty much all the glass is missing and all the blinds are like you know falling apart as well because they've been sprayed with bullets 
Um, so their faces are framed by this like carnage, um, which is just a, a good way of like, sort of it's reinforcing like their physical predicament in the sense that they are amidst all this carnage, but also like their mental states as well. You know, they start panicking. Um, it, it's just, you know, the, what they're framed within is mirroring their circumstances and their psychological state. Um, yeah, that's all I've got to say about it. Just a good bit of framing, mate. I'm going to talk about Guy Ritchie's use of sound again. Of course I am. Because he's good at it. Uh, so when the Skalskis is going to Harry's place, not realising it's Harry's place, they're just trying to get the guns to Harry, but Harry's already got the guns. But they don't realise Harry's already got the guns because they're, I don't know, they're Scousers. <laughs> Joking. Um, anyway, so one of them goes in, uh, again, the stylized slow-mo bit where there's a bit of a Mexican standoff between Harry and um, one of the Skalskisers. Uh, but Skalskiser is too slow on the draw, gets shot, the other guy with the perm picks up his guns and then charges in in revenge. Because where they've been a dynamic duo through the whole film, they're obviously like best friends. So he's devastated that his best friend's just been shot. He picks up the guns and starts screaming, you bastard! And like starts unloading on Harry. And all the time there's this like, this sort of like Mexican sound. Oh, what's the what's the phrase of it? But it's literally like that um that tragic sort of, you know that, that Mexican Western sounding sort of cowboy trumpeteer thing in the background. You know to sort of show the 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 trauma and the, like the drama and like the the loss of like a loved one. And I mean that platonically, unless they were a gay couple. Who knows uh, the romance between them? You know, be it platonically or otherwise. Yeah, it's just great, great use of sound, great use of sound. Um, and then obviously it cul culminates, culminates in uh, people dying. Oh, and sorry as well, just I uh, forgot to comment on this. Um, I was just getting engrossed in the film. But when uh, Vinnie Jones crashes his car to properly fill in Dog um, after he's threatened his son, it's the first time we properly see uh, his character explode or emote something more than just like a stoic, hard man sort of uh, vibe. And that's not, you know, insulting his performance. It's a great performance, but that's all that was previously required of his character was to be somewhat stoic, strong, quiet type, you know? Um, and like I said before, he, he was moving really slowly, like a sort of great white shark type thing. And then all of a sudden, when the gasket blows and he does kick off and properly fill in dog, it's like shouting, screaming, slamming a car door into his head and swearing at him and this, that and the other. So it's, although, you know, it is basically a, a violent scene, it's cool to see a character be tilted over their edge and we finally sort of see their demeanor snap, you know. And the film wraps up nicely shortly thereafter. Um, and we sort of get left on, not a cliffhanger of sorts, but you basically get left with the same four boys still being problematic in the sense that, um, you know, between them it sort of never really goes their way, either through their own stupidity or just bad luck or whatever. Um, and he ends up trying to throw those uh, guns off the bridge and then there's that sort of comical last shot of him sort of hanging off the bridge and trying to grab the guns as his mates are trying to call him to tell him not to throw the guns off the bridge. And then uh, 18 with the bullet starts playing, but you, it starts with that do-do-do-do-do-do, which sort of just, I don't know, when you see the still image of um, Jason Fleming hanging off the bridge, it sort of just, re that specific choice of music just reinforces the fact that he's put himself in the right stupid predicament. So again, Guy Ritchie using great sound 
for his films. Um, that's all I've really got to say about this one. You know, um, I've talked a fair bit about the use of the dialogue, the music, the cinematography and everything. Um, and the soundscape It's just classic Guy Ritchie. Um, but you see a lot of him sort of flexing his muscles in terms of like his stylistic choices. So when in his later films, you can sort of see those come into fruition, you know, like the the honing of his craft and everything. Uh, but this film is outstanding. I love this film. I never get bored of watching it. Um, if you've listened to this podcast and you haven't seen the film yet, I hope I've made it sound interesting enough that you will go back and watch the film. Um, but if you've already seen it, then I'm sure you know what I mean in the sense that it's an absolute banger. Bless me. Uh, for the podcast, peace and love and all that. Rate, review, subscribe, blah, 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 blah. Bye.